Welcome to the Faith Assembly Podcast. We hope you enjoy this week's message. Today we are going to continue our series on our belief systems, on the things that we believe and how they impact our lives. And how many of you know that every single one of us has a series, has a set of beliefs that we use to guide and direct our lives? We may not always recognize that they're there, but believe me, they are. The decisions that we make, the way that we see things and people and situations, they are all through a lens of what we believe to be true. And so it's really important for us as believers to take the time and to recognize what we believe. What are we building our life upon? What are the things and the principles and the values that we hold true? And so what we're doing in these couple of weeks is we're going through four main belief systems, and we're asking if you would take your belief system, hold it up to the belief system that God has, and see whose is right. Spoiler alert, it's always going to be God's. There's only one right answer to that. So last week we started with pillar number one, and we're calling them the pillars. So the foundational piece is salvation. It's the finished work of Jesus. It's what we build everything off of. It's the fact that Jesus went to the cross. He died. He rose again. He gave us a new life. It's all founded in who Jesus is and what he's done for us. But then on that foundation, we don't want to stop there. We don't want to just say, hey, I'm a Christian. I love Jesus. That's it. We want to build upon the incredible foundation that he has established for us. So four pillars. And the first one that we started with last week is I am known by God. I am known by God. And we started there because it is such an incredible insight and and reality to know that before we took our first breath, that God knew exactly who we were. Not only before we took our first breath, but maybe more importantly for the way that we think, before our very first failure, before our very last failure, before any of the things that we've ever done in our life that we're not proud of, the things that would attempt to separate us from God because when we go in his presence, we think about all these other things. Before any of those things ever happened, God knew you by name. He knew you. He gave you an identity. He gave you a purpose. He gave you gifts and abilities, all your own. But if we don't know that God knows us, we will often allow the narrative of the world to dictate who we are instead of understanding that God already has a truth that he has spoken over our lives. We looked at the story of Saul, the man who really had all of of these amazing things going on in so many ways, and yet consistently and constantly he kept going back to a place of insecurity, not knowing who he really was, afraid to really be seen by all around him, afraid that if he was seen, if people saw the real him, that he would be exposed and people would realize that he wasn't really up to the task. And we said that so many times that's us in our lives. When we don't know our identity in Christ, we don't know who we really are. What happens so often is that we try to hide away our our insecurities and our failures and those kind of things because we don't want people to know the real us. But once again, when we know that we know that we know that God knows us, that he loves us in spite of those failures. He loves us even in the places of our brokenness. It means that we can come confidently before him, 
That's what Hebrews chapter 4 says, right? Hebrews 4 verses 14 through 16. Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who is in every respect. He has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in our time of need. We need to know that we are known by heaven, that he knows us and he has spoken a word over our lives. And when we accept this truth, when we realize that we are known by the God of the universe, the next step, the next pillar that we want to look at here today is that I am loved by God. I am loved by God. And, and I know that in some ways this seems like a very simple elementary idea. You hear me say this, you're like, okay, let's move on to the next one. We got this one down. We learn this as kids in, in Sunday school. We learn John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever would believe in him would not perish but have eternal life. This is one of the first things that we tell our kids when they're young and for good reason. Because the love of God is meant to be the foundational belief of who we are. We have to know that he loves us. That he truly loves us. There, there's a reason why we want to instill this in our young people. But when we really talk about this, I don't always know that we have a full understanding of how significant this love actually is. We know that the love of God is what allowed us to step into that place of salvation. But do we really and truly believe it to be true? Matthew chapter 22, verses 34 through 39 tells us that it is on the truth of this love that everything has its meaning. It says that when the Pharisees heard that Jesus had silenced the Sadducees, they gathered together. And one of them, a lawyer, asked a question to test him. Teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? And he said to him, you shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, and with all of your mind. This is the great and first commandment, and a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. So love God with everything that you are. Love your neighbor and love yourself. We have three commands in this. Love God, love your neighbor, and love yourself. But I don't know about you, sometimes the first two come a lot easier than the third. To love God, we know that we love God. We know why we love God, because he's God. He's incredible. He's the one that's given us life. We recognize that we're meant to love others, that we're meant to be the shining light of Jesus for the world around us. But when it comes to the third part, loving ourselves, that's where it gets a little difficult sometimes. For me, this becomes a place where often I could say, well, sometimes I like myself. Not always, though. Sometimes I feel like I have love for myself. Not always, though. I feel like often, because I know myself best, I know the things about me that are the most unlovable. Anyone else? 
And so my question is to really start today is, is very simple. Do you love you? Do you love yourself? I think this is a really important question for us to start with here today. Because if we were to look at ourselves and assess, if we were to have a list with the good column and the not so good column, there is one of those that would fill up a lot quicker than the other. Because very often when we look at us, we tend to judge ourselves and to define ourselves by our greatest fault and our greatest weakness. And so the question is, do you love yourself? You see, because we so often recognize our faults and our failures, this is why, like we said last week, we're so quick to have to put something forward for everyone else to see. A facade, a mask, a barrier, a place of protection, because we don't want others to see what we see. And so we put these things up because we want to keep people away, because we are afraid that the real us is not really all that lovable. Am I alone here today? See, question number two that I want to ask, and in a way of being able to understand this, is can we love ourselves if we don't know what it is to be loved first? Can we really experience love for ourselves if we don't know that, that someone has loved us, has expressed this love for us. It's one thing to say you need to love yourself. It's a really nice thing to say that. And it's true. You can look it up online. I, I googled something around along these lines and it, the things that came up were like 22 tips to love yourself again. Seven ways to practice what it means to love you. But unless you have at first experienced or received love, you cannot truly Turn that love on yourself. Unless you have experienced, unless you have received what it is to be loved, and, and I would say loved on a deep level, loved unconditionally, to know what it is to truly be loved and accepted, it becomes very, very difficult, if not impossible, for us to look at ourselves in the mirror and to truly say, I love myself. And you see, this is a problem because when God says, love your neighbor as you love yourself, if we're not able to truly love ourselves, then we can do our best to love others. But is it a true and authentic love? Is it a conditional love in the same way that we love ourselves? You see, we can't give something unless we have first received it. This is true of loving ourselves, and this is also true of loving God. 1 John chapter 4, verses 9 and 10 says that God showed how much he loved us by sending his one and only son into the world so that we might have eternal life through him. This is real love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as a sacrifice to take away our sins. What does this verse say that real love is? Not that we first loved God, and then he reciprocated. We being the imperfect creation turned our love towards him, and he said, well, I guess I'm going to love you back. No, it says that real love is that he first loved us, even in our brokenness, even in our places of not being able to measure up, 
even in the place of sin, even in the place of, of a broken identity, it says that he first loved us. And out of that place of him loving us, we were then able to return our love back to him and to say, God, I love you. But being able to experience this love in the first place is so very important. We have to know what it is to truly be loved. And not just to be truly be loved on here on earth, as important as that is too. But to be loved by our Father in heaven. To see this love, to experience this love. But this is not just a spiritual principle. And the more that I've taken the time to, to study this a little bit, I've found some statistics that are very interesting, and I think they're very telling here today. There's a professor by the name of Richard Rohner who has done a lot of research in this area of children and their development and how being loved or rejected as a child impacts us for the rest of our lives. And so what he found in his his studies in shaping the personalities of children into adulthood, is that the greatest factor in terms of the impact in a child's development was the understanding of love from their parents. He said, in our half century of international research, we've not found any other class of experience that has a strong and consistent effect on personality and personality development, as does the experience of rejection especially by parents in childhood. He said of all the studies that they've done, the greatest impact on children essentially came down to this. Were they loved and accepted by their parents or did they sense rejection? He goes on to say that children and adults everywhere, regardless of differences in race, culture, and gender, tend to respond in exactly the same way when they perceive themselves to be rejected by their caregivers and other attachment figures. Looking at 36 studies from around the world that together involved more than 10,000 participants, Rohner and his co-author Abdul Khalik found that in response to rejection by their parents, children tend to feel more anxious and insecure, as well as more hostile and aggressive towards others. This impact of feeling rejected is not just one that there is a feeling of, of not being loved internally, but that it is expressed on the outside. And not just for children, but children into adulthood. He goes on to say, the pain of rejection, especially when it occurs over a period of time in childhood, tends to linger into adulthood, making it more difficult for adults who were rejected as children to form secure and trusting relationships with their intimate partners. Moreover, Rohner says, emerging evidence from the past decade of research in psychology and neuroscience is revealing that the same parts of the brain are activated when people feel rejected as are activated when they experience physical pain. Our brains actually process rejection in the same way that we do when there is a physical injury to our body. The only difference, he goes on to say, is that a physical injury can heal, a broken bone can mend, but rejection and the effect that it has on us can be a continual pain that will linger and exist every single time we go back to it. You see, this principle of being loved or being rejected 
and our perception of it goes a long way in determining who we will be, how we will respond to adversity, what we're going to do and what we're going to choose to do in our lives. And, and many of us have found ways to, to be able to find a way to keep going even amidst the rejection. We've found ways to cover it over and to protect. But I would have to say that for a lot of us in this room, there are rejections that we felt that we still carry with us today. That there are still things that we, if we allow ourselves to go back and to look at, would cause pain in the same way today as it did when we were children. See, it's a powerful thing to be loved or to be rejected. And fathers, I want you to listen to this part because this is important. This message today is going to be geared towards fathers in a way, but it's also going to be geared towards anyone who has ever had a father. But for this part, fathers, I want you to listen up. When it comes to the impact of fathers in this study, and the father's love versus that of a mother, results then for more than 500 studies suggest that the influence of one parent's rejection in particular, the rejection of the father, has the biggest influence even greater than that of the mother. Now, upon reading this, I really thought to myself, well, that really stinks. Because in general, I feel like it's the moms who are the ones who are really good at expressing the love. I joked, I think, on Mother's Day that, and this is not mine, someone else said this, but that you could be out there dealing drugs, and your mom will go to her friends and say, oh, he's just studying to be a pharmacist. They'll look for the best in you. My dad told me once when I was young, he goes, your mom is your best friend. Don't, hmm, how should I say this? Don't anger her. Like, not to say I could anger, but, but you need to know the value there. And it's so important. But this study shows that the perception of the love from the father is the biggest factor in the development of the child. It's because of the perception that the child has of their father and who they're supposed to be. So whether they are present or absent, that rejection is going to speak volumes in the development of who a child thinks that they are. They said no matter the race, no matter the gender, no matter the culture, this is true across the board. And so I say this today not because I want anyone to feel that you've failed or you've done a terrible job or, or to carry on some of the, the burden of the rejection that you've experienced, although we're going to get to that. But I want to point this out today because I really want to drive home how significant the love of a father is. I want to say to the fathers in this room that the love that you have for your children, it really and truly matters. That the way that you treat and speak to and accept and and value your children, it really matters. And not just for the biological dads in here, but for every father figure, for every grandfather, adopted father, foster father, for anyone who is a spiritual father. The ability that you have to invest in the lives of those around you, not just children, but adults not just men, but also women, to be able to love on and to be able to invest in the lives of those around you, it's it's very significant and it matters a great deal. (laughs) 
So much of what we see in the world around us today and the lack of identity and the brokenness that exists comes from a place of feeling that rejection and not knowing what it is to be loved by the individual that you feel should be the one that is protecting you, to be the one that is going to invest in you, to be the one that is going to speak a word that maybe you've messed up, but they have a higher opinion of you than you have of yourself. To pick you up when you've fallen. The world is in need of this because on so many levels, the, the issues that we have of identity and gender identity and all of this stuff, it stems from not knowing who we actually are. You see, we can look at the world and we can condemn them, but we shouldn't. We can look at the world and we can judge them for being confused, but we shouldn't. We should be the ones who know our identity and walk in the truth of who God calls us to be so that we can love the world around us. You see, we're the ones that are called to bring the truth of who they are and to speak to their true identity and not just the identity that the world would give them. See, I just want to take a moment to brag on my dad today because I had an awesome, have an awesome dad who loved me through my childhood and, and is such a strong example of what it means to be a man. And I am so grateful for that. But as I was preparing for this, I, I was grateful for what I have received, but I've also thought about those in my life who have also looked to my dad as a spiritual father. I can count... On a couple of hands, the amount of people that he invested in that would look to him, that would receive a word of encouragement from him, that he was always willing, quiet as he was, to speak and to invest in the lives of people around me. And you know what? There was always enough love to go around. Who is it that we can be loving on and investing in in our lives right now? You see, the enemy is on the offensive against the identities and the belief systems of our children. But once again, it's not just our children. It's not just the kids. It's, it's full-grown adults. It's every one of us who need the example of what it means to be a godly man. But in order for us to truly do this, we have to know what it is to be loved first ourselves. Every one of us. But especially today to the fathers who are meant to bring love to those around us. Do we know what it is to be loved? Do we know what it is to be able to love ourselves? because Christ loves us? Do we know what it is so that we can bring it to others? You see, the love of a father means so much in the natural and in the physical, but how much more when we're speaking about the love of our heavenly father? How much more when we're speaking about the God who created the universe? How much more important is it for us to truly know how God sees us? Every one of us in this room. You see, when we look at the example of Jesus, I believe the reason why he didn't come as the conquering hero or the Messiah who rode in as the, as the, the warrior on the horse with, with all of the accompaniment of the angels coming behind him is because the most important thing that he wanted to show us was first what it meant to be a son. He wanted to show us what relationship we were meant to have with our Father in heaven. And, and this is why when Jesus is baptized and he's brought out into the wilderness, and we see that he is tempted by the enemy, what are the words that, that the devil speaks to Jesus? 
What's the question that he asks? Matthew 4, verse 2. If you are the Son of God, tell these stones to become bread. Verse 5. If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down from the temple. Is it any surprise that the temptation that the enemy brings against Jesus is not that if you are the Messiah, if you are the king that was prophesied for millennia, it wasn't, are you going to be the Christ, the savior of the world? He says, if you are the son of God. If the enemy attacks Jesus by asking him if he is the son of God, Can we be surprised when he comes against us and says, are you really a son or a daughter? Are you really a child of God? Look at the things that you've done in your life. Can you really call yourself a child of God? Look at the mistakes. Look at the failures. Look at the places that when you write that list and you see that that you're broken and that you you, you don't measure up. Is it really a surprise that, that he's attacking our identity as children? This is how he attacked Jesus. This is how he attacks us. He questions sonship. And so the question is, do we believe and do we trust this fundamental truth that we are loved by God? Do we believe and know that the God of the universe who does know us deeply and intimately truly loves us unconditionally? Have we allowed this to shape who we are or have we allowed the enemy to dictate the terms on how we see ourselves? Have we allowed the truth of the word of God to penetrate deep into who we are or have we listened to the voice of our earthly fathers that maybe didn't say the right things or the friends or the the family members or whoever they might be that spoke something about us that we have received as our identity? See, very often... We choose to give a lot more credence and value to the words of others than we do to what God has said about us. We tend to look at our weaknesses and the things that we don't have and the places where we have missed the mark and we allow our weakness to define us instead of the truth of who God says that we are. And the reason is because we really don't like weakness. I've never heard anybody say for their New Year's resolution, you know what, I just want to get a little weaker this year. I want to lose some muscle mass. That's what I'm going after. I just got too much of these muscles lying around. I just want to, you know, shed it a little bit. We, we don't like weakness because we judge weakness as being weak, as being vulnerable, as being open for others to come in and to take advantage. So we look at weakness and we judge it as being something that that we shouldn't have and that we have to cover over, we have to hide, we have to push down, we have to to not look at it because it's that weakness that we allow to define us. And, And when we do this and we continue to push these things down, what we're actually doing is we are disconnecting ourselves from the grace and the truth of God. Second Corinthians chapter 12, verses 9 through 11. We read this often, and we could read it every week. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. 
For when I am weak, then I am strong. For when I am weak, then I am. For when I am weak, then I am strong. This is the upside down kingdom. This is the kingdom of heaven that doesn't make sense to our natural minds. 1 Corinthians 1.27, But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. Can I tell you that only God would take the weakness and the places of failure and the places that the devil would like to stick in our face to show us that we're not good enough to show us how strong he is and how good he is. It would only be God that would take our greatest failures and the things that we are ashamed to look at and to use those to be the very things that God wants to define who we are in him. To show us his goodness, to show us his strength in the midst of our weakness. But the problem is we want to get away from our weaknesses as quickly as possible. We want nothing to do with them. Am I right? Has anyone embraced their weakness? I know we should be. But weakness, we we try to run away from it. You see, it's in our ability to recognize our weakness that allows us to walk in true humility. It's in the places of recognizing that we don't have what it takes that is the starting place for recognizing true humility. But there's more to it than that. Because simply recognizing our weakness is not humility. 1 Peter verse five, chapter 5, verse 5 says that God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Okay, so we have to recognize our inability and our weakness. But the thing is, when we recognize our weakness, we have two choices. We have the choice that says, I'm going to handle this on my own. I'm going to stuff it down. I'm going to push it aside. I'm going to ignore it. I'm going to go to drugs and alcohol and pornography to make, make myself feel better. I'm, I'm going to do whatever I can. I'm going to lash out in anger. I'm going to put forward this facade so that way when anybody gets close, they can't get close enough to actually see my weakness. You see, that's one option. Or in my weakness, I'm going to recognize that my strength only comes from God. We, we have two options in these, in these situations. And anytime we choose to do what we know to do, and it may not be a conscious decision, but when we do that, do you know what that is? It's pride. It's pride to say, God, I got this. There was weakness, but don't worry, God, I got rid of it. I did better. I tried harder. I, I followed all the list of things that I felt like I should do. I got this. Self-righteousness. It's not humility. But God gives grace to the humble. But what does he do to, to pride? He resists it, right? So what does it mean to walk in true humility? It means to recognize that in the place of my weakness, there is only one source that I could turn to. There is only one place that I could go to find out that my weakness, that in my weakness, I'm actually strong. It's only in the person of Jesus. But when we go to our own ability, to our own pride, to whatever facade that we put forward, in that pride, what we are doing is we are disconnecting ourselves from the grace of God. We are being disconnected from the grace that we need to become who God has made us to be. 
There's a disconnect at that time. The breaker is tripped. The line is cut. Whatever analogy you want to use where in heaven God has spoken a word about who you are and has given you what you need through the grace of Jesus, that line becomes severed when we turn to ourselves in pride and self-righteousness. But when we recognize what Paul said, that in our weakness we find strength in him, when we realize that he is the source who has done all that needed to be done, what do we, what do we receive? Grace. We receive exactly what we need in that moment. You see, recognizing our inability without seeing God's ability will always lead to idolatry. We have to recognize that we can't do it on our own. But recognizing our inability without seeing God's ability will always lead us to serving something else, which is idolatry. But humility in its fullness is recognizing what God has for us. So the question is, how do we come back to the place of embracing our weakness, walking in humility, and recognizing the love that God has for us. See, the first thing I want to say is that I wish I could just give you a verse and you would hear it today and everything would be better. I could say, do this thing and all of a sudden you're going to walk in complete humility. You're going to see the truth of God. You're going to walk in that that love on a deeper level. What we have to realize is that this is a process. That this is a journey. That our eyes need to be fixed on the source and that he is going to bring us. But there are some things that I I do want to look at here today, okay? So I was reading through uh, the book of 1 Samuel and 2 Samuel, which is actually one book, but they split it in half. And we get to the end of 2 Samuel in chapter 22, and I found something that I, it it really jumped out at me. I, I thought that it was something really significant. This is towards the end of David's life, and he's lived an adventurous life. He has taken out a giant. He has become king of Israel. He's run away from Saul. He's, he's had to go through these trials and these ups and these downs and, and all very well publicized. And we get to chapter 22 and we read something called David's Song of Deliverance. Now, we don't know if this was written much earlier or here at the end of his life, or maybe he wrote it at, the, uh, at a different part in his life and he's just revisiting it here. But I think there's something really significant for us to see in two parts. We're not going to have time to go through all of it. Verse 1 of 2 Samuel chapter 22 says, And David spoke to the Lord the words of this song on the day when the Lord delivered him from the hand of all of his enemies and from the hand of Saul. He said, The Lord is my rock and my fortress and my deliverer, my God, my rock in whom I take refuge, my shield and the horn of my salvation, my stronghold and my refuge, my savior. You save me from violence. I call upon the Lord who is worthy to be praised, and I am saved from my enemies. For the waves of death encompassed me, the torrents of destruction they assailed me, the cords of Sheol entangled me, the snares of death confronted me. In my distress I called upon the Lord, to my God I called. From his temple he heard my voice, and my cry came to his ears. The first thing that I want us to see is that David was a man who knew what it was to be loved by God, He knew what it was to have weakness, to not be able to do it on his own, and to be able to turn to God. This sounds like so many psalms, doesn't it? 
there's so much going around. I'm, I'm being broken. I'm being attacked from every side. God, will you deliver me? David knew where to go in the time of difficulty. But as we continue to read this, and I would encourage you to read the entire thing, I want to skip down to verse 21. There's something that David says here that that so strikes me. It says, the Lord dealt with me according to my righteousness. According to the cleanness of my hands, he rewarded me. For I have kept the ways of the Lord and have not wickedly departed from my God. For all his rules were before me, and from his statutes I did not turn aside. I was blameless before him, and I kept myself from guilt. And the Lord has rewarded me according to my righteousness, according to my cleanness in his sight. Now this is beautiful, but it also seems a little bit delusional. How is David... How is any man going to stand before God and say it's according to my righteousness? How is David going to come before God and say, because I have done everything right and the cleanest? I don't know exactly when he wrote this, but I do know that there was this period of time where David saw a woman bathing on a roof, took her, basically raped her. uh, Then she got pregnant, killed her husband, covered it over and brought like discipline upon himself in Israel. And this is the man who said that my way is blameless before God? How is that possible? Okay, so I'm going to be honest. I don't 100% know. But I'm going to tell you what I do know. I I listed this on my notes as Old Testament grace or OG grace. This is like the, the original understanding of grace. Because how is it that David could see himself as blameless? And even more so to have the gall to think that God could see him as blameless. In a time where their sacrifices were atonement, their sacrifices were, were something that would cover their sins temporarily. But he's saying to God, in my righteousness, you saved me. You see, David, first of all, understood the love of God on a very deep level. Like he understood that even in his shortcomings, God loves him. I think this was established when he was out in the field taking care of the sheep and God kept coming through for him and rescued him from the lion and the bear and he went out. God, this was the young man who went before Goliath, the giant that everyone else was peeing their pants over, and he went out and defeated the giant. There was something that David knew to be true about himself based out of the way that God loved him. So that's number one. But number two, I believe that David was tapping into something Supernatural. That, that he was following after his great-grandfather Abraham who believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. But that he was, he was stepping into something in the supernatural. The supernatural is super being above what is natural. Something that is not earthly. It's not found in our, in our human realm. And when we look at the Old Testament, we see amazing examples of this. How else would Moses have led the children out of Israel, out of Egypt, the nation of Israel out of Egypt? How else would they have split the Red Sea? How else would they have crossed the Jordan River? How else would we see these crazy stories of of Samson killing a thousand men with the jawbone of a donkey, calling fire down from heaven? The supernatural was present in the Old Testament. And so what David was able to, to tap into out of his understanding of who God was and his identity was the supernatural grace that would not come for generations. That Jesus was going to come from his lineage as as a descendant of who he was, but yet 
as he did many times, he spoke prophetically of something that was to come. Do you know 25 different times David prophesied something specific about who Jesus would be? Psalm 22, he talks about his bones being broken and, and talks about the, the nails and he talks about his garments being, being uh, sought after by the Romans. David was tapping into something in the supernatural realm. Do you know that when we are able to come to a place of understanding the love of Jesus, especially now in the New Testament, understanding what Jesus has done, that we have the ability to tap into something that is greater than we could ever physically walk in on our own. That there is a supernatural grace that's available to us. We are so concerned with the natural natural, the very unsupernatural. But God is saying, I am calling you as my children to walk in the supernatural, to walk in that which is above and not below. What does Paul say? Set your eyes and your minds on that which is above and not beneath. What does he say in Ephesians? That you have been seated in heavenly places with Christ, far above, far above the principalities and powers and rulers of darkness. There is something about knowing who we are in Christ. There was something that was exemplified here in the Old Testament through David, that shows us what it is to fully know that there is a God who loves you, who loves you deeply, who loves you unconditionally, and has done everything that needed to be done for you to become who he's made you to be. There is a supernatural grace that is available for each one of us when we step into the identity that God has for us. When we recognize that he is our source, that he is the one who gives us the ability to touch something that seems so far off, but to receive it and to make it our own. You see, if David was able to do this before the reality of the cross, how much more for each one of us? If David could recognize that even in the midst of his greatest failings, that his sins could be wiped clean before the Lord. How much more us? See, the truth is that we don't have an excuse. We have challenges. We have a lot of things that would stand in the way. We've got a lot of belief systems that would try to disconnect us from this truth. But we have to know the reality that is present in the person of Jesus through the sacrifice of Jesus. Once again, this is not a one-time thing. This is not a, a, let's say this one time and all of a sudden everything's going to be better in our life. But this is what I truly believe here today, that there is a supernatural healing that the Holy Spirit is wanting to bring here today for those who have experienced rejection and pain and hurt. That there is a supernatural reality that God wants to make so clear to us today in this room. That there are places that he wants to visit and to bring healing to. That he wants to restore to us the joy of our salvation. To know what it is to fully be redeemed. And to know that he loves us unconditionally and deeply. No matter what has gone before us. No matter what our families have looked like. No matter what our past has looked like. No matter what our decisions have been in the past. That at the moment that we said yes to Jesus. At the moment that we received him and his grace that we've been restored back to the right standing with him and that nothing else in our lives gets to dictate our identity. Nothing else in our life gets to tell us who we are anymore.